You're listening to the Northwestern Campus Ministry Podcast from Northwestern College in Orange City, Iowa. Northwestern Campus Ministry exists to send students out as those rooted, built up, and established in Christ for God's glory and for the sake of the world. Thanks for listening and enjoy this recent message from our Christian Formation Program. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Nathan and Elisha, for that wonderful music and prayer. Um, Well, I know you're all excited to be here and uh, catch the next installment in what Dr. Mead characterized last time as movie star wars. And I know you've been thinking all week and looking at my picture on the website, trying to figure out exactly who I would look like. I have to tell you um, that uh, I was really intrigued by our presentation last Friday. Dr. Mead confessed how desperate he felt after the first two talks, and I can identify with this a little bit. Um, Of course, we had Indiana Jones um, present to us the very beginning uh, part of our series, a little help there with a recognition, and then we were followed immediately by uh, none other than Bruce Willis. And uh, I tell you, after the end of the second week, uh, I felt pretty much like Dr. Mead did. I I don't have a long list of celebrities that people have told me I look like, and I wasn't quite sure what I was going to come up with for my introduction, and so I actually thought I would kind of do the same thing that he did and uh, tell a story of looking around at the Google and come up with some kind of anonymous Northwestern student person, but then he took that idea too. And so um, last week I was kind of bereft. And, uh, but I, I took heart, the Google is a big place, and uh, I also realized that I am much younger than Dr. Mead, and so much more internet savvy, and I knew that I could come up with a much better internet search than movie stars I remind people of. And so I set out to do that, and I came up with this one. What celebrity do I look like? Well, believe it or not, if you type that query in to the Google, you actually get a website called starbyface.com, which is a celebrity lookalike face recognition app. And so I thought, sitting in my office, what harm could it possibly do for me to upload my picture to a random face recognition site on the internet using my Northwestern computer? So I did that. And... um, After I paid the ransomware fee to some guy in Western Siberia, um, this is what I got. And uh, I tell you, this is the power of the internet right here. That first guy, I don't know if any of you all know him, Ricky Whittle. Has anybody ever heard of Ricky Whittle? I had never heard of Ricky Whittle, but 59% is my similarity to Ricky Whittle. And he stars in a TV show called American Gods. So the rest of them on that list, uh, just such obvious lookalikes, Daniel Day-Lewis, Burt Lancaster, Bing Crosby. Um, I don't know about you all, but when I saw this collection of faces, I was convinced that I had won movie Star Wars. But I was not content just to be victorious, and I didn't think I'd taken enough risks, so I went to another site that um, told me it would use machine learning to uh, match my photo with a celebrity, and uh, it it advertised itself as the site that just might be 
the most accurate look-alike tool on the internet. So I uploaded another photo, and after watching the gears turn for a little bit, I received, and I'm not making this up, I received this back from the Google. Oh no, never mind, this is what I did. Here's what I got back from the Google. <laughs> was I in X? Yes, I was, and finally, finally someone recognized it. Um, Students, this is why your instructors encourage you not to plagiarize your papers from Wikipedia. The internet um, just does what it does. Um, but to put the final icing on the cake with all of this, uh, my good friend and colleague, Dr. Rebecca Korselman, who teaches in the Education Department and History, uh, and History Department here, I imagine some of you have had American history with her, reminded me yesterday that she had identified a celebrity look-alike for me from the pages of American history. And those of you who've taken her course may already know where I'm going with this. Um, and I was excited about this. Uh, finally, a human being, someone who knows me and sees me, someone who's actually really bright and thoughtful, um, had found a celebrity that I looked like. Now, I don't know whether you've been told by anyone um, that you look like a famous person or a celebrity, but your first instinct is to take it as a compliment, even if you haven't actually seen a picture of what that celebrity looks like. And so, this is my look-alike from the pages of American history, according to Dr. Korselman, um, John T. Scopes, the infamous plaintiff in the Scopes monkey trial. And I tell you, I have not yet decided whether or not this is a compliment, but there it is. With my last two photos, I want to transition to our topic for the day. Um, this is a picture of my family, uh, my wife Janelle, who will be known to many of you in the music department. Um, she's actually in many ways more gifted, probably in all ways more gifted um, than I am. And also a picture of my children. And I show you this picture to show you another one that was taken just last week. It's a different kind of look-alike photo. As part of a kids' club event, my girls are in a, a club, club called Gems. I don't know if I have any former Gemmers out there, girls everywhere meeting the Savior. Okay, wonderful. Um, in the Orange City group, every year they host an event, a dress-up event, daddy-daughter event. Um, and this year we decided we would, well, this year the event was about looking like a spy or a detective, and so we dressed up in our secret agent clothes. We took notebooks and asked people penetrating questions about their whereabouts between the hours of 10 and 2. If you ever want to freak out fourth grade girls, ask them where they were yesterday between 10 and 2 with a notebook in your hand. My daughters and I made up a spy song, and believe it or not, my girls were pretty sure that no one recognized them at the event. Um, we looked like spies, at least a little bit, uh, but of course we weren't, but we had a good time. Um, and I'll circle back a little bit uh, to this picture in a bit. So, today we continue our discussion of the Apostles' Creed, and this section of the Creed covers uh, a lot of ground. We've mentioned already that the origin of the Creed is likely in vows taken at baptism, and that the emphasis that the Creed places on Jesus is due to the uniqueness of the confession about him and the fact that he was the most distinctive element of the Christian faith compared with what other options were on offer at this time, and it was important to get him right and while it is true that the creed says quite a bit about Jesus compared with other things, there is still a lot left out about Jesus, and we'll see a little bit more about that later. What I want you to see as we get started, and we'll be focusing on this portion of the creed, 
What I want you to see as we get started is that this part of the creed is organized into four sentences and that these four sentences are very efficient. They say a lot. They cover a lot of ground. Um, So I hope that you're ready because we're going to move quickly and then I'll linger a little bit at the end. So the first sentence of the creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, or this part of the creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. This word Christ, as you'll know from Christian story one, is not Jesus's last name. It is a title and affirms that Jesus is to be identified with the Messiah promised to the Israelites. The word Christ means anointed one, Messiah in Hebrew. And there were three key figures in ancient Israel who played a mediatorial role and who were anointed to do that. They formed a bridge between the people and God. These were prophets, priests, and kings. All of these figures played a key role in connecting the people with God. They brought God near to the Israelites and they brought the Israelites near to God. And so when we call Jesus the Christ, when we call him Messiah, just saying that word affirms that he fulfills all three of these key roles. He is the paradigmatic prophet who speaks God's truth to the people. The paradigmatic priest whose sacrifice described in the book of Hebrews is acceptable to God, who brings the people to God. And the paradigmatic king, Ezekiel 34 and John, the good shepherd who will rule Israel justly and rule us justly as well. He is the Christ. He's described as the only son of God. Um, This word only really bothered the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism. What does it mean to talk about Jesus as the only son? Are not all who are in Christ God's children? And so the Heidelberg Catechism spends some time talking about what this word only means. And they assert that what it means is that Jesus is the only natural son of God, which Of course, it's kind of problematic, too, to use the word natural, maybe, in talking about Jesus. But what the catechism means by using that word natural is not that Jesus is ordinary, but that he is the only son who shares the divine nature. He is fully God. He is the natural son of God, sharing fully in his divine nature. Finally, this word Lord, which is a weighty word, and I think it's more weighty than we often catch or often think it is. In the Old Testament, again, as you know from Christian story one, God has a proper name, uh, a first name, if it will, a name beyond just the the standard word for God. That word, uh, that name, uh, historically has been pronounced Jehovah, and so you'll see that still today in some Christian songs and hymns. But we're convinced that it was probably more accurately pronounced as Yahweh or something like that. Yahweh, Jehovah, God's personal name. And the ancient Jewish, Jewish community, concerned with breaking the third commandment, taking the Lord's name in vain inadvertently, developed a practice of replacing God's name with the word Adonai, which in Hebrew means Lord or my Lord. And so when the New Testament writers and the writers of the early creeds call Jesus Lord and choose to use that word to describe him, we need to be attentive to the fact that they may not mean it in the generic way as sort of a master or a boss, but rather in this very specific way, a word that indicates not just Jesus's authority, but Jesus's divinity and specifically his oneness with the Father. He is Lord. So that's sentence one, all of these things together, Jesus as Messiah, the only son sharing fully in the divine nature, our Lord, stake out Jesus's divinity. He is fully God. The second sentence was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. 
The Heidelberg Catechism explains this sentence this way. It says, this sentence means that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary a truly human nature so that he might become like his brothers and sisters in every way except for sin. Again, thinking of the creed as this brilliant, succinct summary of the key doctrinal points of the Christian faith, this line I think of like a finely calibrated scale or a balance. Um, Maybe in science class, you used one of these really accurate balances where if you put the tiniest pebble on one side, the scale would tip one direction or the other. This line is trying to articulate in a perfectly balanced way that Jesus is fully God and that he is fully man. A vitally important truth about Jesus. He is at once fully God and fully human. It was something that was hard to understand, something that the church debated and discussed about for several hundred years after um, this creed likely was first used, first formed, and, and that still is a matter of discussion and difficult understanding for Christians today. There were other stories deriving from ancient Greece about divine appearance to mortals. Those of you familiar with the Odyssey will know this. Athena appears um, to Odysseus in a whole variety of ways. In this literature, though, the gods appeared to humans for brief periods and sort of put on human bodies or disguised themselves as humans, kind of like my daughters and I were attempting to disguise ourselves as detectives. They put on a human costume. But the creed wants to make clear that this is not the way we understand Jesus' humanity. He didn't just put on a body to appear human. He was human. He was born. He was knit together in a mother's womb, to quote the psalm. On the other side of this claim about Jesus' humanity that we see in this sentence, he's born of the Virgin Mary, we see a claim about his divinity And his divinity differed as well from the claims made of kings in the ancient Near East who were often described as adopted sons of the gods or people who became gods themselves. Jesus, the creed says, was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And whereas cultures in which these views about um, the, the divinity of the king developed were polytheistic, Christianity grows out of monotheism. There is only one God. And so either Jesus is that one God not just a God, is that one God, or he is not God at all. To quote C.S. Lewis, Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. There are no other options. So conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, this perfectly balanced statement about his humanity and his divinity. So if the first line of the creed or the sentence of this section of the creed focuses on Jesus' divinity and the second affirms his humanity and his divinity in a perfectly balanced way, the last section here focuses on his humanity. And frankly, there's a lot of yuckiness here. It's all about suffering, crucified, died, was buried. And this is where you feel like a lot is skipped over. Why do we go so quickly from Jesus' birth to his suffering and his death? There's a lot of Jesus' life that is not covered by the creed here. Much of his teaching is not engaged. Some really important stuff, his miracles. Jesus fed 5,000 people and then later 4,000. He healed the blind and the lame. He cared for the poor and the sick. 
He said things like, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say, love your enemy. There's no discussion here of his parables. Why skip over all of this part of Jesus' life when it's taught so clearly in the Gospels? Again, the creed is a summary, and it's hard to know all of the reasons for sure, but I'll give some suggestions. Um, One, the Gospels themselves skip over the vast majority of Jesus' life. We don't know much about 14-year-old Jesus or 16-year-old Jesus or 25-year-old Jesus. There are parts that just aren't included. It also may be that the creed is focusing on components of Jesus' identity that were most confusing to early converts familiar with other religious ideas from the ancient world. For those who used the creed, understanding Jesus was foundational to understanding his teachings and his actions, and so focusing on him um, was a key component. But still, why focus on this part of Jesus' actions? He was a teacher and a healer. I think the focus has to do with the focus that Jesus himself placed on his death. Luke's gospel maybe makes this most clear when it tells us in chapter 9 that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem for the purpose of his suffering and death. To Peter, one of Jesus' disciples in Matthew 16, Mark 8, who said that this will never happen to you, Lord, you won't suffer and die when Jesus spoke about his own death, Jesus' response was, get behind me, Satan. Later in Luke 9, Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And after the resurrection, he explains to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? The creed focuses on the sufferings of Jesus because the New Testament focuses on them, because Jesus himself focused on them. But there's something else here. You've all heard the old saw that the only things certain in life are death and taxes. Well, I can't claim universal knowledge of the second thing, though I've paid a lot of taxes in my time, but I do feel confident about the first. The one part of human life that none of us can escape, the thing that perhaps as much as any other marks out human life as distinctively human, is death and the suffering that accompanies it. I said that the first sentence of the creed focuses on Jesus, or the section of the creed focuses on Jesus' divinity, and the second is a perfect balance, affirming humanity and divinity with this kind of precision. And here in the third sentence, Jesus' humanity is clearly in view, and its focus is the suffering and death that is common to all of us outside the Garden of Eden. And what we notice is that the creed slows down here. By slowing down at this point of Christ's death, the creed invites us to linger over the mystery of the incarnation, fully, completely, Actually, without having to cross your fingers or squint or look askew, Jesus, the Son of God, died, writes Rory Schreiner. He did not conduct his mission on this earth in a hazmat suit or in a detective costume. He completely identified with our humanity in order to heal all of it. As Gregory of Nazianzus wrote, that which he did not assume, he did not heal. The crucifixion happened and Jesus was died and buried. The final line is tricky, and I'm going to go through it much quicker than I would prefer. Your uh, teachers in Christian Story 2 would tell you we could spend hours talking about this last line. He descended to the dead. 
Those of you who are familiar with the creed from church may have seen this uh, in a slightly different version. Um, He descended into hell. The challenge here, um, in a brief nutshell, is the New Testament has a variety of ways of talking about the post-death state. We have the word Hades, which means the grave. We have the word Sheol in Hebrew, which means the grave, this kind of shady place that people go after death. But we also have the word Gehenna, which refers to this burning pit in the middle of Jerusalem and, of course, the lake of fire. And so what's the right equation here? What is the way that we understand Hades? Is it the grave, this kind of shadowy place, or is it this burning place of punishment? And, of course, what is Jesus doing there anyway? I'll tell you that I prefer the translation hell, and if you want to know why, you can talk with me afterwards, but it's not because I think that Jesus visited the lake of fire after he died. To understand this word and what it means for us, though, we need to look at a couple of passages of Scripture in very brief um, glance. This first one from Isaiah discusses the atonement. It says, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Skipping down, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we were healed. Jesus bore the penalty for our sins. The bulk of that penalty was a penalty that he experienced as a physical person, as in his body. But this line of the creed reminds us that Jesus' suffering was not just in his body. Our human nature consists in our body, but we are not just our bodies. Whatever happened to Jesus after he died, whatever happens to us after after we die, the creed wants us to know that Jesus experienced that too. And his suffering was full and complete. I'll close with this sentence from Calvin, which explains, uh, who didn't understand Jesus as having gone to uh, the place of eternal punishment either. He says, in order to interpose between us and God's anger and satisfy his righteous judgment, it was necessary that Christ should feel the weight of divine vengeance, that he should engage it, as it were, at close quarters with the powers of hell and the horrors of eternal death. Well, it is Jesus' full payment for our sins that allows me to say to all who are in Christ, go in peace. But before I do that, I want to put in a plug for next week. As Christians, our focus tends to be on the cross and on Christ's death, and this is surely vitally important. But as we'll see next week, it's only part of what we need to know about Jesus. And so I encourage you to come back um, and hear what Professor Kaltwasser has to say about the second half of what we need to know about Jesus. But as you go this week, please remember what this part of the creed teaches us, that Jesus was fully God, that he was fully God and fully man, and that he did bear God's full judgment for our sins. No part was left out. And it's because of that that he says to you today, go in peace. Have a great day.